But I found that through Christ, that's where the, the true freedom and the true liberty is. And every one of us came here with something we can do. And, and my only hope is just to maximize it. Holy are the peacemakers. I mean, that gives it a whole new perspective. You know, this is the way to progress on the covenant path. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Profiles. I'm Brian Howard. We're here on the LDS Motion Picture Studio campus in Provo, Utah. And joining me today is Jennifer Nelson. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much. What an honor to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Jennifer is a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, and lots of books. I don't know how many you've written. How many books have you written? Do you know? Uh, published 21, written oh, many yeah, more. That's, uh, two different <laughs> questions, I'm sorry. <laughs> so some of you recognize the Ascendant series, the False Prince, Traitor's Game series, you've got historical novels, The Resistance, uh, Night Divided. The one that uh, will be out by the time this airs is Iceberg. Yeah. So people can look forward to that one. Uh, Jennifer, I, I was looking, uh, reading through stuff about you and you've got, it's a great story. You yeah, grew up in Northern Utah and you seem to always like writing. Why, why is that? What was it about writing that drew you to it, reading and writing that was an attraction to you? You know, I, I think I just am a writer. Mm. You know, in the, in the same way that, you know, maybe somebody, as soon as they're old enough to hold a crayon, they're making shapes on paper or as, you know, because they are artists or they can throw a ball, catch a ball. They are athletes. Every instinct I have is to put story on paper. That's just part of who I am. Mm. And so from an early age, I know I was reading in your bio, then you were trying to write a book. And uh, I was telling you about a colleague who does uh, research on ego boosters and ego busters. You know, ego boosters are people who build us up and the ego busters are the one to kind of burst the balloon, right? Sure. And uh, I was reading you had uh, done, doing some research and you called up a locksmith to try and get some insights on how to pick a lock. And tell us about that experience because that would be considered, I think, an ego buster. <laughs> You know, in uh, sixth grade, it was the first time I really understood that regular people could choose to be an author. Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, I had a character who was locked in a room, and I didn't know. I mean, you can't go to the library and ask for their lock-picking section. But to me, it was the most logical thing to just call a locksmith and ask. It's research. And uh, that did not go well. Uh, he yelled at me. He uh, said, you know, you tell your mother what you're trying to do. I screamed and hung up the phone and ran away and hid. Uh, I never wrote another word on that story. Mm. And, uh, and I've kept the story all of these years because it's my reminder now of what a foolish thing it was to quit. Why should I ever have cared what some locksmith thought? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so now it's my reminder that I don't write to please anybody else. I write because it's who I am. Well, you know, when you're that age and you have that kind of a reaction from adult, it does have a big impact on you that can carry on for a long time. How long did it take before you got over that? That was, you know, that was not good. No, it wasn't good, but it wasn't, I mean, the locksmith didn't know. Yeah, that's right. Right? I mean, he genuinely thought I'm trying to break in, you know, to some <laughs> valuable place. He's trying to like protect my mom. Uh, you know, in my life, I've been really lucky to be surrounded by far more uh, ego boosters mm -hmm. and, and people to believe in me. I had a grandma who just, anything I would say I wanted to do, should say, great, be your, the best you can at it. And it really didn't matter. And, uh, and so in the end, the overall balance for me, I've, I've been very lucky 
to be have more ego, ego boosters. The ego boosters thankfully. and the busters. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I know during like high school, you did speech and debate and theater. Uh, kind of put writing a little bit on the side a little bit. What was the draw for for those particular things for your outlet? I mean, it's all story. Theater is story. Uh, debate is well, that's just arguing. <laughs> but uh, speech is the ability to tell a story. And you know, in hindsight. Those classes did more for me in becoming a writer, I think, than, uh, than anything else uh, because it taught me how to express thoughts. It taught me stage presence. It taught me three-act structure, dialogue. And, and so I don't think I ever wandered away from it. Mm -hmm. It was just a phase in my life where I was expressing story in just a different way. Do you have a favorite part, by the way? I'm just thinking doing all the plays. Any particular play that you enjoyed? It's probably too long ago to remember. No, no, no. My <laughs> senior year, uh, I played um, the wife and mother in Look Homeward Angel. Mm -hmm. And there was this boy who was cast as my husband, didn't know him from anybody else. We had a stage kiss. Uh, a few years later, we were married. Mm -hmm. It will always be my favorite role because... <laughs> I met him. You met him there. How long, uh, obviously, before you got married? How, how did the courtship go? We had, uh, we finished high school. We had a year of college. He went on his mission, and we dated a little while after, and that was 30 years of bliss later. Here we are. Mm. So the stage kiss started everything. So good on the director for calling for Good on the director. My dad wasn't super happy. I think he was starting up the row, coming out of the audience like, I don't know. I don't know this boy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, you know, there's a long pathway to overnight success, right? People don't know that you're a writer until something's in front of them that you've published. But you have a, a great story. It's great now because you can look back and talk about, uh, you know, successes that are failures but turn into successes. Look at we're, You talk about your uh, manuscripts you know, they weren't that good. How do we know, you know, looking back, hindsight's great, but when you're writing, you think they're good, right? I mean, you're going sure. through, you think, I think this is good. Sure, and, and that's, that's great. You have, you have two hats as an artist. You have the, the creative hat, which should be unedited, and that's where you should just love your work. And when you finish it, then you put down that hat, you put on your editor hat. Your he editor hat should criticize everything and should find flaws with everything. And, and my editor hat was incredibly disappointed at what creative <laughs> me had done because it was all deeply flawed. And that's, and that's part of the process of, of creating anything is to, is to recognize, like if, if we put this expectation on ourselves that we have to start out creating something great, well then nobody would ever create anything because you have to create stuff that's not good before you're ever going to qualify yourself to create stuff that, that other people might enjoy. I mean, I just, that's the process. You shared some anecdotes with, when you shared that I am going to be an author and others were skeptical, I guess, to say the least, right? Well, what were those experiences like when you mm -hmm. shared your, your aspirations? I told my neighbor about it. She was one of the first, just standing on her front lawn. And I was like, you know, I think one day I'd like to be an author. And she's, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? I could have said anything then. I think I would like to land on Mars one day. Isn't that nice? And she had, she just never thought twice that that was a possibility. I spoke to another published author who said, that's great. It'll never happen. But that's great. And, and I learned from that 
Not that these people fell into that category, but I learned to be very careful who I listen to. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people out there who try for something and then they don't succeed. And so then their message to others becomes, well, you'll never succeed. Mm -hmm. And so I don't listen to people who uh, fell short of their dreams uh, because they're not going to help me reach my dreams. Mm -hmm. and, and I learned from that. Well, you continued writing despite the negative reviews <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> uh, what was your process like? So how did you decide what you're going to write on? And that process is getting published. I guess it's a little easier now because there's some self-publishing options. But if you want to get published by a publisher, it's a rigorous process. What was your process of deciding on a story idea and, and going from there? It's always just whatever lights up my imagination. And that, that could be any sort of a story. But to get published, for me, that first time, you know, I wrote a manuscript. It's garbage. It's going to be buried with me. Uh, and that's just to save everybody else. Uh, the second one, horrible, going to be buried with me. The third one I thought was all right. Uh, still bad, not publishable. The fourth one I thought everybody's going to love it. That's when I really started sending out query letters trying to uh, get a publisher. And it was straight rejection, one after another after another. If we were to total it up, I mean, honestly, it's uh, it's in the hundreds mm. that I you know that I accumulated over those manuscripts. Um, there came a point when there was an agent interested, and just suggested it would be more publishable if I just added some scenes, and I wasn't willing to add the scenes that this agent wanted, and and that shifted me away from the genre I had been writing, which is writing from adults, into writing for young people because I wasn't going to compromise mm. on that, and uh, continued to send out letters, continued to get those rejections. Um, finally, there's one publisher left. They pretty much take everybody, so I sent them off my query letter. Fast forward a couple of months, and uh, it's the morning of my birthday. Mm. On the morning of my birthday, I get a phone call from somebody on one manuscript, a friend of mine. One manuscript, one man, uh, query. She had sent it off to them, gotten her acceptance letter. Mm. And she's like, isn't this great? And I'm like, oh, oh, that's so great. And it wasn't great. It was, I was so <laughs> jealous and I was so hurt because success had come so easily to her. And I had fought for it. And all I was doing is just hitting against a brick wall and... I thought, well, at least then I know that uh, they're sending out their acceptance letters. I went out to the mailbox, and sure enough, there's my letter, and I opened it up. And from the publisher who accepts nearly everybody is my rejection mm. on my birthday after that phone call. So that's a bad day. And, and I went in the house, and I thought, for me, it's only going to be one of two things forever uh, from this point forward. And either I will... Uh, quit and admit I have no talent and no future or I am never failing at this again and I threw out everything I thought I knew about writing I started from zero and started to learn again that's the last rejection letter I ever received but I literally had to go to nothing before I figured out how to write mm. I, when you say you went back to zero, what did that mean as like you restructured your whole thought process or how you went about writing the books or your target? What, what was the restructuring process? It was, it was looking at people who were succeeding and saying, what are they doing that I am not doing? 
And what are my motives? And, and I realized I was writing so much to try to please other people and not writing for myself what I loved. And so the passion wasn't there as it needed to be because you can't create for somebody else. You create for yourself. And, and that's when you have all of that drive within you. And, and so it was. It was relearning, it was relearning the art. Tell me about the day you got the acceptance from your manuscript. How did that, much better than your birthday. <laughs> much better than my birthday. So I don't know if you'll remember this. You might. But the whole world stopped spinning for a moment. And you might have been like, what was that? Like, why did the whole world stop? Well, that's because I got my yes. And it didn't stop for very long, like a half second. But for that half second, everything in the universe froze to recognize that it wasn't a no for the very first time for me. Mm. Much better day. Yeah. You know, from there, obviously that one got published and was successful, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, was there, you know, from that point, is it easier to continue on? Is there added pressure? I was successful this time. Can I do it again for the next? How, how, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was very much that, that can you replicate that again and and again and that's where you have to just dig deeper and and when i say i'm a writer mm -hmm. it, it came to that sort of a core to say look if this is who i am then um i should be able to do this again i'm not just a one story person because it's it's part of myself yeah. um but but i don't mind the pressure uh and I just stay focused on the story and stay focused on the art and everything else will just take care of itself. How do you come up with your stories? You've got princes and kings and kingdoms and all that kind of stuff. Is this, you know, you think back and these things just come to you. Do you have to think out character plots and what's, what's your process of coming up with those creative ideas? Um, Orson Scott Card is the man who wrote Ender's Game. Mm -hmm. He said that every one of us, every one of us passes by a thousand story ideas every single day. He said if you're a good writer, you might see five or six of them, and most people don't see any. Mm. And I really loved that. And I've taken it to heart of just saying, you know what, I just want to see those story ideas. And once you train yourself to look at the world around you, and all I do is if something catches my attention for any reason, then I take hold of it and I start to ask questions and the questions lead to story. Mm. Uh, when you create characters, like you have an ongoing series, so you mm -hmm. have the same character up here, uh, does that character come to life? I mean, is it, you know, you're thinking about putting yourself in the place of that character. What are they gonna do? How are they gonna interact? How do, how do you, uh, you know, create those characters and make them move on to different stories? Yeah, they, they live in my imagination. It's where I sound just a little off center. <laughs> uh, they just live in my imagination. They'll make running commentary on my life and uh, and they'll just continue to nag me with plot points and and here's a thought and here's an idea and and I've just learned to listen to my imagination and then I don't have to create the story the character just tells me the story and so then all I have to do is just write down what's here uh, as long as I'm just listening to it and it's no different I mean from writing a standalone to an ongoing series you just listen and trust your imagination trust your creativity it'll all be there hmm. you know one thing I always wonder about as you're writing you know for a lot of us who go to a job we have set hours I show up at this time I do this thing uh, for writing do you have set times when I say I got to write especially if you've got deadlines of course and there's expectations for a new book to come out how, how do you manage your time and your workflow with your writing process 
it is it is not the most unheard of thing that my husband will wake up at like two or three and be like, where is she? <laughs> you know, and I'll just be, you know, in, you know, a corner of the bathroom. And I'm just like, oh, I just had to type this. I just I just thought about this or, um, you know, I, I might wake up early. I might stay up late. I mean, when it's the time to write, it's the time to write. And uh, and I keep. I try to guard my family time very carefully so that that always, there should always be a hierarchy, right? God first and, and family second, and then writing comes in third. But when it's time to write, I write. How does your family, your husband and your kids, how do they feel about the writing? Do you talk about it at all? Do they give you advice? <laughs> they don't so much give me <laughs> advice. There's always a constant, you know, who's the first to read mom's book, which is kind of a, just a funny sort of a contest. But I don't so much even care if they read my book. I want them to read because it's so important. But, uh, and they all have different favorites, but I tend to be mom mm. for them, and, and that's how it should be. I know uh, for when you publish your book, a lot of times you do go to schools. So that's the kind of age group. What's the, the age group we're talking? Sixth, eighth grade, somewhere in there? Fourth grade to eighth grade Fourth is my grade. sweet spot. Okay, that's a sweet spot. So you go visit these schools and you have kids come. They want to spend time with you, get you signed the book, talk about it. What's that experience like and, and to work with the, the kids that have read your books? It's why I write. I mean... I, I feel like that I have this, this arrangement with heaven. All right. And it's this understanding that um, God doesn't care about my books. I mean, really, he doesn't care if I write about this or this. He cares a great deal about who my books allow me to reach. And and so I consider when I have a, a, a moment with any young person that becomes almost sacred space because I understand that um, there's a lot of uh, respect that a young person is going to show to an author, mm. especially if they've read one of my books and they love it. If you love the book, you love the author. And so I treat that as very serious uh, time and it allows me to have a very positive influence if I use that time. Um, I'll give you an example. I was in um, Arkansas mm. and there's a line of people waiting to uh, come and get their book signed. But at the very end of the line, there's this uh, eighth grade boy and a woman who seems a little old to be mom. So I'm thinking maybe she's grandma, but they seem very familiar with each other. So I'm starting to think maybe he lives with her and, and she's the caretaker. And there's something in me, I know I've got to speak to this boy and I don't know about what, I have no idea. I know I'm supposed to speak to him. And as he's getting closer and closer and there's nothing in my mind, well, he's um, signing the third of the False Prince books, which is Shadow Throne. And I signed that Face the Wind. And so I'm signing for the boy. And then I said to him, do you know what this means? And he shook his head. He had no clue. And I said, all right, you know when you're outside and all that wind is coming at your face, I said, every instinct you have is to turn away from the wind and protect your face. And I said, think about that wind as the hard things. And I said, I don't know what it is. I know you're going through something hard and that wind is coming at you. And I just said, I'm telling you, you've got to face the wind. You've got to face the hard thing. And he's an eighth grade boy, right? Mm -hmm. So he just kind of, oh, okay, and, and shrugs and, and walks off. And minutes later, grandma comes up and she just folds me into her arms and she's just crying. And she's just like, I prayed for some sort of, of a communication like that for this boy. And, and she says, you will just never know. And I will never know. 
but I know that I'm supposed to be there and the book is the reason I was there. And so it's why I love being in schools. Because mm. I, don't, I don't know when the opportunity will come, but I'm ready. You're ready. Uh, I'm just curious, what do the, you know, the kids say? Uh, are they awestruck? Do they, have, do they ask about characters? Do they want to know what's going to happen next? And what, what kind of things do they ask you? Young people are extraordinary. And if we give them the opportunity, they will rise to it every time. There are a lot of kids out there who are writers or who want to be, or they have this story. And when we give them the opportunity, they will express really brilliant ideas and concepts. They're so creative. And they will ask serious questions. How do you do this? What is your process? How can I move forward? What, how could I access the publishing industry? Uh, they'll ask funny questions. Uh, you know, do you have a dog? What's your, what's your, you know, are you in for pizza or for ice cream first? <laughs> they'll ask that. And, uh, and they'll ask, you know, could I do this? Is, is this dream, it, could it be real? And, and they want to talk about real things. And when we talk about real things to young people, they will listen. Hmm. I know you're involved with organizations like LDSPMA, Latter-day Saints, Publishing Media and the Arts, uh, where the kind of community uh, comes together to try to help each other out. Uh, it feels like there's a pretty good community of writers who really try to help each other, which you're involved in. What's, what's that like? You know, do you enjoy helping the aspiring writer to try and get better, get published? Oh, I mean, I'm the beneficiary of people who helped me. I mean, it would be disingenuous not to pay that forward. My, my philosophy is that at my best, I could never write enough books for any single reader. And so it benefits me to help that reader love books more. And to do that, I've got to recommend other um, voices and other authors to them because it, in the end, it's, it's going to help me as well. And so we are stronger when, when we are working together as authors and we do need more voices. We do need more people from our community to become successful because um, students need to hear hopeful messages and happy messages and positive messages. And, and I, I think it's a great honor to be able to help anybody. I mean, there's so much talent in our community, so much. What, what would you say is the biggest struggle when you meet with people and they're trying to do this? Is it the same thing? Is it their creative side? Is it they're frustrated with the process or don't know what to do? What, what are the bigger frustrations with people who feel like they've got something in them, but it's just not quite happening yet? I think, I think for a lot of people, I think a lot of people choose small, safe dreams. Hmm. And, and that's always my encouragement never to do that. If, if you have a small dream, then every decision you make is going to funnel toward a small, you know, reaching that small dream. And, and you're never going to achieve higher than your biggest dream. So mm. my idea is have big dreams, mm. have crazy dreams, have the kinds of dreams where your neighbor says, isn't that nice? <laughs> because then every decision you make is in this direction. And so I'm always encouraging people don't have that small, safe dream. You do the biggest dream you can imagine and it will reorient you toward what is possible for you. That's, that's the one I'm always trying to overcome. Mm. What's, uh, what's uh, in the future for you? Have you released a new book, Iceberg? Mm -hmm. uh, what else is coming down the pike? By the way, tell us a little bit about that one, Iceberg. It's about the Titanic, right? Is that correct? It's a Titanic story, and I really wanted to tell it just in a different way because everybody knows something about the Titanic. And researching that was amazing. I mean, just to, 
just to think, okay, could we have saved nearly everybody on board if one telegram operator had not been rude to another ship? What if, what if they had simply turned off the lights? And there's so much that's available in research I had never known. I didn't know the Titanic was on fire when it set sail from Southampton. And could that have affected anything? Um, coming up, though, is a story that's really close to my heart. Um, in 1943 in Warsaw, Poland is the ghetto uprising. That was the Jewish mm -hmm. uprising. One year later was the city uprising mm -hmm. where Jews and Christians alike rose up to fight against the Nazis. As part of that battle was a 15-year-old girl, Lydia. And Lydia was fierce and brave and bold and uh, actively fighting in the streets. Later in her life, uh, Lydia became a convert to the church. She ended up in Hurricane, Utah. Mm. I'm going to tell her story, wow, awesome. and I'm thrilled and such an honor to be able to talk about her. That's my next project. Mm. You know, I'm visiting with you and your story. It feels like you, you've got a divine direction. This is something that you are supposed to do. Is that how you feel? I think all of us do. I think every single one of us do. I think somewhere in heaven, we all got in a line. And then somewhere in the line, you know, the angel is passing out the card to say, look, you should know if you're in this line, there are certain expectations of you. And every one of us was in a line for something. And every one of us came here with something we can do. And, and my only hope is just to maximize it because my time here is short. I want to do the most with whatever I'm given that I can. But it's not just me, it's all of us. All of us have something. Mm. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure talking with you. A New Thank York Times you. bestselling author, many books out there. Iceberg is the one that will be out just after, uh, just before this airs, so people look for it. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate your time.